Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers and philosophers, social entrepreneurs and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, hello, everyone, and it's my great joy today to be in dialogue with Neil Douglas Klotz. Hello to you, Neil. Thanks, Chloe. How are you doing? Great to talk with you today, Neil. For those of us that perhaps aren't so familiar with with Neil's life and work, I've been really privileged and inspired to know of Neil's work for many years. So for those of you that aren't so familiar... Let me just share with you a little bit about his extraordinary life. Neil Douglas Klotz, PhD, is a renowned writer, teacher, and artist in the fields of Middle Eastern spirituality and the translation and interpretation of the ancient Semitic languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic. Living in Scotland, Neil was for many years the co-chair of the mysticism group of the American Academy of Religion. A frequent speaker and workshop leader, he is the author of several books, and his books on the Aramaic spirituality of Jesus include Prayers of the Cosmos, The Hidden Gospel, Original Meditation, The Aramaic Jesus, and The Spirituality of Creation. Blessings of the Cosmos, and Revelations of the Aramaic Jesus. So Neil's books on a comparative view of native Middle Eastern spirituality include Desert Wisdom, A Nomad's Guide to Life's Big Questions, and The Tent of Abraham with Rabbi Arthur Waskow and Sister Joan Chittister. His books on Sufi spirituality include The Sufi Book of Life, 99 Pathways of the Heart for the Modern Dervish, and A Little Book of Sufi Stories. Neil also edited four collections of the work of Middle Eastern mystic Khalil Gibran. He's written a mystery novel set in the first century CE Holy Land entitled A Murder at Armageddon. So, Neil, I mean, this is just such a wonderful opportunity to just explore the theme that I know is just so close in both our hearts, the theme of compassion. I'm just going to dive in at the deep end with you and just simply to ask you, what is your understanding of compassion from your vast multi-faith background? 
what would you say is compassion and how has it been realized in your own life? Thanks, Chloe. I think these are great podcasts. And as you mentioned, it's a very pressing theme for all of humanity today. Personally, I would say my, my experience of compassion has changed throughout my life. Uh, in that earlier life, when I was much more full of myself, I was simply trying to be more uh, empathetic with people and to develop helpful qualities like compassion and what we now call deep listening and things like that. And, you know, as, as I've gotten older, and perhaps this is something that happens to many of us, one becomes more grateful for circumstances, events from the past, which although they may not have seemed gifts of compassion at the time, they are now revealed to be that. So uh, my current view is that really compassion is, is the nature of the cosmos. It's the nature of creation itself. Mm. And that although we tend to think of these as human qualities, uh, it's really us, up to us, uh, it's up to me to become less oriented, less self-focused, less focused on my individual self so that I experience, I witness, and I, how would we say, I, I express this compassion, which is already all around me uh, in nature and other people. I, I notice it more, in other words. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I love that idea of just shifting or rather evolving perhaps, or moving between the, the, you know, the realms of empathy, compassion, and then as that relates to wisdom and love, of course, yeah, which is so central to your life's work. Again, this, this sort of circles back to, I could say, what my, some of my work has been, which is, you know, all the, the, the ancient Middle Eastern traditions, which we could also call uh, ancient Southwest Asian nomadic traditions, mm. they speak about uh, compassion and the word for compassion really being at the very beginning of the cosmos, being at the, the beginning of everything. Mm. And this is why we have the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic word that is usually translated as compassion being derived from the word for womb, W-O-M-B. So that which is that which is giving birth, that which has given birth to us from before time. So in this view, we are, we are born from, you could say, compassion, and then we're born from our mother's womb, and then we're born into this life as individual selves, and we will be born again, not the normal Christian born again, but we will be born again as we continue on. So as Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi says, what is brought us this far will will take us further so we're just born from you could say born and reborn from womb to womb to womb and this was also yeshua that is jesus's point of view if we look at his words in aramaic mm. oh i'd love to hear you speak more about that too that would be just really precious particularly the aramaic version of the lord's prayer sure we can we can do that what i would say first in terms of Jesus is that throughout his teachings, we find uh, different words for love. And one of the words that he uses, which is most related to what I just mentioned, this 
could say this birthing type of love, this you could say more unconditional type of love is Racham and Rachmane, and he uses this, for instance, in the Beatitudes uh, in Matthew where he says that we become ripe when we are, you could say, giving birth, giving creative birth from within us, from this deep place of, of Racham, of Rachmane, and this is the one that is usually translated blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy and one of the interesting things about this particular beatitude is that it occurs in the middle of a sequence which really is a sequence of of diving down into one's depths through breath and through feeling and then you could say reclaiming this deep sense of compassion which then we not only find within us but we then we experience it around us so this is why he says you know if we give birth to this deep sense of creativity in whatever form that may be it may not be it may be in an art or music or poetry or a song or or a relationship then we find this more and more all around us and i, I think this has been uh, probably experience of many of us that when, deep, when we're deeply involved in some creative project or deeply involved in a, in a relationship, you could say the, the distance, the, the separation between myself and other or between myself and what I'm working on, this either disappears or it becomes very transparent. And so it's, it's just, one, one is just in compassion, one is in this sense of, of deep creativity. Actually beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, so there's that sense of the disappearance of, of the eye, is it? It's a temporary disappearance. Again, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of backing into speaking from, you could say, what the way these traditions look at things, which is that we have two ways of relating to life. One is with our individual sense of self, our I, so to speak, our individual self, which is according to the word for it, which in Jesus's language is nafsha, it's like a breath that is held within this form, within these bodies, for a particular amount of years. It has this sound of a, of a held breath, like, a, like an inhale through the nose breath and held in the third eye or held in the middle of the forehead, nafsha, so it has this pH sound. And then we have another way of relating to life, which is the breath that is you could say always flowing, it's never held, it comes from before, it's extending afterwards, and this is the, you could say the soul, if we can use that term, although I know this term is used differently in different psychological or spiritual traditions, but uh, in the Middle Eastern traditions, this word, which is something like for Yeshua, for Jesus, Rucha, or we have it also in Hebrew, Ruach, and in the Sufi tradition, we have virtually the identical word, Ruch. This is this this, you know, this is the wind that we feel penetrating through our skin and through our pores and when we're deeply embedded in nature, it's all around us. So it's not held in any sense. We're, we're part of that bigger breath. So a held breath and a breath that we're part of. In some ways, simple from, a, from an ancient nomadic point of view, but we have to remember that these, these languages predate grammar, they predate, of course, religion, and they come out of a very deep ancient nomadic experience before agriculture and before we had very much sense of control over anything as human beings. We're simply following what Yeshua would call the breath, the wind, the spirit, all of which is the same word in Aramaic. We're following intuition, going where our ancestors tended to go to find food, to find shelter, seasonally or otherwise, 
And yet often we have to be respond to circumstances, unknown circumstances, responding to changing circumstances. And this was, this was, you could say, the nomadic experience. And for many of us today, I would say we're coming back to this again, that we can't rely on things that formerly we relied on, formerly we thought we had control over, and now we realize, oh yeah, well, maybe we don't have that much control over things. Maybe, we, we, maybe we've over-controlled, overused the environment. Maybe we've, maybe, there's no maybe about it. You know, we've lived under the illusion of, of false control, and so we need to sort of restart or go back to the beginning. Wow. That's absolutely fantastic. That could take us off in so many different directions. I'm just really fascinated by your use of the word nomadic, particularly as you say at this time. There you are living up in Scotland. Um, (laughs) And and I'm down in, in the southwest end of the same island. You know, I've just been very aware of Are you finding this too? I mean, I certainly find it when I'm up in Scotland, is that there's something about the landscape there that really does sort of inspire this connection with with breath and with sound and with the whole sort of energy field of, of, of devotional prayer and this awareness of us being, you know, so interconnected with, you know, as you were saying earlier, with the whole of nature. Yeah, definitely. There's no question about that, Chloe. I mean, my wife and I are very, can I say, blessed without being cliche. (laughs) But we are very blessed to live in a part of Scotland. We, I mean, we live in Fife, so it's not. How would we say we're not we're not up in the high highlands, but we're close enough that I can go out and walk in a nature district, you know, a protected area within five minutes from our home, Mm -hmm. uh, up in the Lomond Hills, and and. We're, you know, really very privileged to live here. I, I reflect back on a bit on my childhood where I was brought up in the suburbs of Chicago, but at that point, I wouldn't say it was pre-settled. It wasn't pre-agricultural, but we, we lived in an area that was largely in its natural ecosystem at that time, which was a meadowland and grassland and wetlands in that part of Illinois before the suburbs had been totally built out. And my parents were very much into the early ecological work of, of Rachel Carson and her book, Silent Spring, as, as well as into organic gardening. So we had a huge, well, almost sort of a small farm where we were growing our own food. And, and my father was one of the early chiropractors in Illinois. So it was very much sort of an alternative upbringing in the 1950s. So that sort of predisposed me to you know, some of these directions that I've headed in over the many years. Yeah, well, that I, that was going to be one of my questions to you, is it really how, how did this all begin? So that really gives a very clear indication of, of how you were inspired in this direction, in, in very much, you know, the spirituality deriving from the Middle East. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, my parents, they, they read us Bible stories at night, but they didn't really give us much theology. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, none, zero. And my parents were... How shall I explain that? We, we, were, we were living in a small, semi-rural area of Illinois at the time, and my father being one of the early chiropractors, this was like equivalent being a witch doctor at the time in the <laughs> 1950s. And so we had, to, we had to try to blend in with our surroundings as best as possible. So my parents sent my brothers and I to Evangelical Lutheran Grammar School, wow. that is elementary school. Hmm. And so 
given that as a background, our cover story, if I can <laughs> say, was, was that we were, we were normal Protestant Christians, whereas at home, my parents are studying, you know, Rachel Carson and Edgar Casey, who was an early channel in the U.S. and, you know, and, and growing our own food and all these things. And at, at this time in the 50s, what, what Rachel Carson was writing about was right. You know, they used to bring, tru they used to bring uh, trucks through your area and just spray DDT everywhere around by you. Mm -hmm. And my parents taught us, okay, as soon as you hear the trucks coming, come home, shut your windows, close the door, uh, and don't, you know, try to just breathe shallowly. And meanwhile, all my, the, you know, my friends who were, I was playing with, they were all going out and playing in this, in this wonderful fog of, of pesticide, because it wasn't that fantastic. And, and, you know, we know what some of the health effects have been of some of that uh, tw 50 years later. So it was very much, a, you could say, an alternative upbringing. <laughs> Wow, what a blessing for you there. I mean, to be protected from the unconsciousness of the sort of modern day agricultural values. You know? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was something else. And so we were always a bit, as I say, we had this, I, sometimes I tell you, we had this sort of inner life of our family and then what we presented on the outside. So for me, there was always this sort of inner outer thing. So maybe that predisposed me to what we now call esoteric study or, or anyway, to being suspicious about things. Uh, actually, when I started to work for a living, I worked as a journalist, as an investigative journalist in New York City. And because I had the sort of upbringing that I had and, and had studied this these things my whole life, I I was mainly in the area of of ecology, and particularly in, in the 1970s, the consumer protection movement was a big was a big thing. So I was investigating the Food and Drug Administration and what was being put in our food and what the drugs were doing and all these things. And and before the era of the internet, uh, to cultivate sources in the government and read through government reports and you know and how to ask questions and get people to tell you things they didn't know they were telling you and you know it's it's a, it's a you know it's a suspicious yeah. bent of mind you could say that I was raised with so when I finally got into what we would call spiritual things it's it's not really much of a surprise that I went in a similar direction. Is what these people are saying in the in the Quran and in the Sufis or all this, the Bible, is all this really what, what the language is saying? Or is it was it really something else? So, you know, it was part of the same sort of investigation, but different. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I'm just so um, happy for you that you had this early connection with nature and that that was encouraged by your parents. And so... From that investigative journalism, how did the the shift then happen, and and at what point did you move more towards these uh, the, the spiritual languages? It sounds like you speak several languages, right? You no, know, again, I, w I was I was rather naive, I have to say. In some ways, I am still an idealist and very naive. But I was working for an alternative journalistic uh, collective in the in the seventies, and uh, after I graduated from university and and dropped out of New York City, sort of high, how would we say? I, I became disillusioned with mainstream journalism even in the 70s because I could see which way it was going. Mm -hmm. And so I was working for a collective, what we called a collective, and we were syndicating stories to about 500 alternative newspapers in the US and university newspapers at a time when there was still a, a very large and thriving independent press in Thank the US, <laughs> which is not that which was not the case now, obviously. Mm. But this is this is before Reagan and all of these things. And so 
I saw a survey, uh, I think it was a Gallup survey, if I recall, where people were asked, uh, given that we have no solution to the problem of nuclear waste, is nuclear energy a viable way to get our energy? And then 70% of the people queried said no, 70%. And then as they would in these surveys, they went, they would go on to ask a number of different questions about different subjects and things like this. And then toward the end of the survey, people were asked, well, if you had to give up something because we no longer had nuclear energy or fossil fuel energy, uh, would you be willing to give it up? And the same 70%, 70% said, no, we would not be willing to give anything up. <laughs> so in those days, as I said, I was somewhat naive and we all lived, we all, you could say the people I worked with, we lived under the, the point of view that if you gave people the facts, the actual information about what is going on, they would act appropriately. <laughs> Mm. And then it, it seemed as though from, from this survey that actually know that, that we human beings, we can hold two, you could say entirely a contradictory points of view at the same time. And so that led me to really question myself, well, yeah. you know, Neil, what, why do you, how do you make decisions in your life? Do you always have all the facts or are you often making major life decisions, not based on fact at all, but based on something much more you know, much deeper inside of you. Right. And this is where I had a sort of, I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis because I was only like 27 or 28, I think. Mm -hmm. But uh, I had, maybe some people would call it a Saturn return. I don't know. But anyway, I, I went on a, on a search, you could say a spiritual or psychological search and eventually found myself sort of in the Sufis, the Western Sufis in, in California. I had been living in Denver, Colorado at the time. Mm -hmm. And to make a long story short, uh, in addition to being suspicious about some of what the translations they were giving me were, because I had a literary background, I had a background in editing, I was put in charge of the archives of the person who had started what are called the Dances of Universal Peace, oh. whose name was Samuel L. Lewis. Because I could speed read and I could edit and I could do all these things, I, I went through a lot of his writings put together a book of his sort of semi-autobiography. And in one of these, I think it was a recording actually, he said, I want to do two things before I die. I want to start these dances of universal peace so people can learn to eat, pray, and dance together. And that's my peace plan. And then he said, the second thing I want to do is I want to learn how to pray the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. Great. Because it's the original language of Jesus. But he had never, he had done the first, but he'd never done the second. Uh-huh. So that was what we would call a moment for me. I can hear that. <laughs> I think really? Joyce calls it an epiphany or something like this. So that, that was a moment where, you know, things just stop and yeah. there's, you know, it's like, oh, okay. And I was raised Christian and this and the whole thing. And then I went all, I went as far as I could away from that and, you know, became sort of secular and existentialist and all this. And so, well, what about this? You know, what about the, who knows about Aramaic? Does anyone know about this? Where can I find out about this? So mm -hmm. I started to investigate and that's how I ended up basically doing what I was doing. But I, sh I should say, and I'll, you know, this, this goes on a little bit further because it's not all head research. It was really heart research first. Mm -hmm. And then I began to chant words of Jesus's language, really the, the first words of, of the Lord's Prayer, what, what Christians call the Lord's Prayer, his prayer that he gives in Matthew and in Luke. I began to chant them and tone them on one note. And mm -hmm. when I was on a spiritual retreat, 
I found my body sort of making movements that I had not been aware that I knew. And there were melodies, there were chanted melodies coming through me with these words. And mostly I was afraid to tell people about these things. Mm. But because we had this form, coincidentally, this form called Dances of Universal Peace, I began to try out the movements and the chanting with people. And, and this developed into something over the last 40 years, so that now many people chant these melodies and they do these movements and, and mm. meditate with the words. and. And so it all just, you know, went on and on from there. And the other big piece of the puzzle was that I went to work for Matthew Fox, who was at that time teaching an institute or guiding an institute in Oakland, California, across mm. the bay from where I lived. And Matt hired me to be his sort of Sufi person and dance person. And, you know, I got talking to him about Aramaic and Jesus. And, and he said, well, you know, Neil, you know, this is wonderful, but if you really if you really want to spread this to more people, you need to study Aramaic properly and, you know, and write a book about it. <laughs> and so Matt really encouraged me to do that. And, and that's what I then did. So the whole kind of embodiment of spiritual life was really just sort of happened just so naturally and, and synchronistically and organically for you, it sounds like. It was just one, as they say, one thing after another, Chloe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One looks back at it now and one sees, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, how, how these things that seem coincidental or synchronous or whatever you want to call it, yeah. accidental even, how it all sort of weaves itself together. And I end up doing something strange like spending, you know, a large part of the last 40 years studying Jesus's words in his native language. Yeah, that's just so far out. Looking at, I mean, the, the way that you were describing, you know, just like, the very unconscious, you know, sort of toxic values of the material world, so on, and technology and agriculture, and just, you know, how completely based on a kind of separatist idea of it all and, and how much money can we make. So, yeah. So you basically evolved, yes, as you say, that, that sense of the, the, the synchronicity of things and all of that. I can very much relate to that because it's just the same for myself. You know, that sense of being really called into something, you know, as if you're just being sort of drawn into. Yes. And, and I didn't really know where it was going, you know, be, I, but then I, as I studied this, you could say seemingly obscure thing, which mm. is Jesus's native language, you see, oh yes, well, in these days, and even for him in the gospels, he didn't have this separated version of heaven and earth. Mm. I mean, he didn't have like nature out there as an object to be used, mm -hmm. you know, and and then the spiritual life as something separate or just within me, within my individual self. No, all this is interwoven, you know, and so then when Christ, you could say when Christianity appropriates the words of Jesus mm -hmm. and it becomes a whole, you could say, a tradition of empire, yeah. you know, all this unravels or ravels into uh, colonialism, mm. uh, ecocide, all sorts of unintended consequences, you could say, or perhaps it was in intended. And one finds that, as I wrote about at one point, you could say that the spiritual energy that was there in the earth tradition is then extracted from its native soil and, you could say, refined into a product which uh, becomes toxic. Right. Yes, it's it's like sort of white 
refined sugar, isn't it, out of the, the well, and, and and it's not unusual. I mean, it happens. It happens in with the message of Prophet Muhammad in Islam. It happens in in all the traditions. It even happens in Buddhism. Although people want to look the other way at the way it's it's evolved, but you know, mm -hmm. it's it, it happens in all the world's traditions. You ha you start with a mystic or a prophet or a shaman, you know, whatever you want to call it, and then because of the tendency of you could say the human self over the last several thousand years, all of this gets sort of made into either a selfish or a selfie product mm. which becomes institutionalized in different ways not just in religion but but also sometimes in different spiritual groups in politics you know all sorts of things and uh, and that's where we are now absolutely absolutely i mean i remember it wasn't until i really found myself in kajarao in india in the in the great sacred feminine temples there that i i sort of felt as if i was just remembering myself you know mm. the first time you know even though my dad was uh, my dad was actually a priest and then became a bishop so he was mm. he really caught in the whole institutionalization of sure. religion and so on so it wasn't really until I went to India and just kind of just disbanded myself from from the kind of tight shoe of of institutionalized Christianity and then the, the move into thanks to the whole fascination and popularization of, of Rumi's poetry, of course. Uh, yes. That, that kind of, that massive sort of gateway opening for so many people who just really didn't want the institutionalized piece, but they definitely knew they had a spiritual calling of one form or another, you know. Yes. But were seeking a language that they could relate to. Yes, there's, you know, a lot of the people who read my books, I mean, many of them are Christian because they're looking for something authentic in their relationship with Jesus. Some uh, start off their lives, or they, some start off their interests, they're, they're completely what I would call Jesus-phobic. Mm -hmm. And so when I begin to talk to them about what who Jesus was before Christianity, mm -hmm. this strikes a bell with them because they may have gone into other traditions, but then when they get, you know, as it happens, if you do deep meditation or any sort of deep work, you come down to a place that needs healing in yourself. And often that is is where the, you could say the dam, not the damage. You could, yeah, it's a type of damage. It's a type of religious abuse that the person has experienced earlier in life. And they find they need to sort of unlayer that, unpack that, let go of all that. And so some of this this work with the Aramaic of Jesus has been helpful for people in doing that. So it'd be wonderful, Neil, if you would, uh, you mentioned uh, just before we started the recording, you mentioned that you'd be happy to consider just offering a, a practice or sure. a musical um, expression that would just give people a little taste of the vast years of your own practice. Yeah, let's do, uh, uh, what I'll do is we'll do a little bit, I'll chant a little bit of one of the Beatitudes in Aramaic. This is the one I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. the one usually translated, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. This is about, you know, finding that womb of compassion, of creativity within us. And then we also find it around us, all surrounding us already. And, you know, I can send through the transliteration of the words later, you can put it in the podcast description or something if people mm -hmm. want to chant it chant it later that's fine with me or they can find a lot of this on my website too so uh let's do that i'll chant i'll get my guitar here and i'll just do a brief chant and the words are tuvehun uh really uh for yeshua 
the word that's usually translated blessed really means ripe, R-I-P-E, at the right time, at the right place. We could say in, the, in now, in the now, in the moment of now, are those who, you could say, breathe, feel this deep sense of, it says, lam rachmene. You can hear in the sounds of these words, there's breathing and depth in it, rachmene. It, it resonates between the heart and the belly. And then he says, delehun, again, more breathing sounds, nehun, still more breathing sounds, rachame. So it's all about breathing and feeling the depth of creativity, of compassion, and what we could call love within us, except that sometimes love becomes an overused word, but I like your, your focus on compassion instead. So allow me to just chant a little bit of that, and then we'll, we'll round this off here, I guess. Thank you so much. Tuvehun Lamrahmane Delehunehun Rahme Tuvehun Lamrahmane Delehunehun Rahme Tuvehun Lamrahmane could just breathe for a few moments, breathing in Allaha. This is the name Jesus uses for what's usually translated as God, really means unity or all that there is. It's related to Elohim in Hebrew, Allah in Arabic, for Yeshua, Allaha, Rahme. Allaha is the source of every creativity, all compassion. When we breathe deep, deeply within us, we find it within us and then hopefully more and more around us. So breathing in Allaha for a moment in the heart and breathing out Rahme. Allaha Rahme. Amen, Amen, Amen. Amen, Amen, Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Goodness me, that was just that. 
just simple introduction there, it just takes you very deep, very fast. The fact that you can hear the song of the breath in the sound. Yes. Well, that, that's why this chanting is, you know, I found is, it's essential to, to the work that you can't understand these older languages without sort of singing them, chanting them. Um, right. And yep. because it's all about body and breath and feeling all mixed together, not separated out like we've become used to. Exactly, exactly. Even just hearing myself right now, it's such a different sort of, it comes from such a different stream in a way, doesn't it? And it's, you know, it's, it's, it comes from, as you say, from a kind of lineage of, of colonialism and, and strategic prowess and diplomacy and, you know, the Commonwealth. and Yeah, you know, I mean, to some degree, although we could have a separate conversation on this, you know, if we get <laughs> into, say, you know, the Anglo-Saxon words, okay. Anglo-Saxon root words, and then, of course, into Celtic languages, Scottish, Gaelic, or things like this, you have much more body in these. Right. And so this is why I think, you know, people are enthused about Celtic spirituality, you know, because these things don't have a lot of that separation we've been talking about. No, they were never separate, right? I no. Mean, that just, that never happened. But I suppose, I suppose why it is that we find ourselves born into situations sometimes did you know James Hillman's book, The Soul's Code? I have not read that one, Chloe, no. It's an interesting account of, he's really looking at who's born, you know, who is born. Mm. And what is it about the nature of the soul that whether you're actually given to have, you know, really challenging, possibly even abusive, very, very demanding childhood into adolescence and that that can actually... Yes catalyze that kind of absolutely radical desire for awakening yep. you know it, it doesn't necessarily follow that you know that that therefore makes you into a completely unconscious hopeless depressed not human. not at all i mean look at jalaluddin rumi says you know increase your need you know with enough need and enough yeah. difficult experiences that can be turned around right. i mean it not not that one wishes you know a difficult childhood or difficult experiences for anyone not by no means but but you know this this happens as much as it as the opposite. Well, without conflict, there's no music, is there? I mean, without no. There's, no. No energy, there's no energy, there's no love. So it, it, it all arises out of there. But somehow, what I hear you really calling us to is to a conscious engagement and an understanding of how to navigate the opposites, how to navigate yes. duality, so that duality becomes a triadic, becomes the trinity of experience, and yep. that becomes the multi faiths and and you know and and the multi-dimensionality of who we actually are yeah the chord resolves you could say yeah, lovely <laughs> <laughs> well my goodness me i just feel like we're just opening so many doors and i'm <laughs> i'm having a wonderful memory actually of listening to one of your albums on the breath quite a few years ago now but i'm going to go right back to it and encourage everybody else to do the same hmm. uh, because your work you have done, it's just extraordinary how you have really integrated so many traditions and really restored and brought back to life and made accessible these sacred languages and the sacred language of, of spirit and made it so available to people. And I cannot think of anything more important right now, uh, particularly in terms of restoring and encouraging an awareness of compassion in the world at this time. You know, it's a time of such awakening, isn't it? I'm just noting yes. 
in my own work, you know, how many more people, the most unlikely people are finding themselves exploring this work now, whereas maybe 10 years ago, they, they would have run a mile from it, you know, and now yes. like, wow, this is where it's at. I think, I think so. I think that on one hand, we, we face very deep, challenging times. Mm. And on the other hand, that is impelling people, opening doors for them to, yeah, to go in these directions, as you've been mentioning, Chloe. Absolutely. Well, I, I really bow and there's so much more for you to share. And I know your new book, you have a, a, a wonderful new book coming out, which I know is, again, it sounds like an act of compassion that you're, you mentioned to me in previous conversation, that it's a kind of, perhaps a kind of distillation of of your life's work today. Yes. I, well, here, I, I forgot to mention it at all. But anyway, I'll say a few words. But hey, yes, yeah, it's, it, I, I, I wrote it <laughs> over yes. lockdown. So it was as many people were engaged with different things. But mm -hmm. yeah, it brings together all of my Aramaic Jesus work for the last 40 years. And then I added many new translations and, you know, that I did uh, as part of weaving it all together and integrating it all into a, a complete picture of, you could say, really where, where Yeshua is coming from what Jesus before Christianity was about and what it means for us today, really. My goodness. Well, that and then your your website, as I understand, one of them is abwoon.org. Is that right? Yeah, that's the main one now. The others, the others have sort of faded. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, nothing has faded here. I mean, what you are bringing forth here is, is, is a life's work of, of great sacred significance for our time. It really is. And thank you so much, Neil. I mean, we've hardly started to <laughs> really just, but we have certainly touched on some essential themes. And I can only encourage people to, to go to your albums, your audio books, your recordings, and of course, your most uh, recent book. Is that to be published soon? Yes, it's coming out in October, Chloe, actually. Okay. actually. So you, you've got time. <laughs> Here, I'll tell people. <laughs> no, you can pre-order, as they say, as they say, pre-order now or or not, or wait till later. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that'll be a very special moment. So perhaps we can reconvene at that time. And uh, sure. Mm. Thank you so much, Chloe. And this is important work you're doing with these podcasts, and and your work as an artist, as as a musician, also extremely important with people and bringing out their real voices. This is also essential, essential work. We're very blessed, aren't we, to be uh, to be called to this work. I must say, I feel it more than ever before. I must say, it is wonderful. But it's been a real privilege just to have this opportunity to share these essential themes with you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Chloe. Neil Douglas-Klotz, thank you. So